Great to see you. My name's Matt, if I haven't met you before. Uh, I want to piggyback on what Tim was saying about serve teams. Really thankful for everyone uh, who serves as part of a team. Uh, I want to highlight one team in particular where uh, we are in need of help. That's our kids team. Really thankful for our kids team. Uh, there are a bunch of kids right now, somewhere in the building, and we can't hear them. Let me listen. No, they're quiet. They're being well cared for. They're being taught the things of the word. It's uh, a blessing to have that team, and uh, we could use some more help. So if, um, if that's you, if you have some experience in that area, or you just kind of like kids, uh, we would invite you to uh, talk to Sarah, uh, fill out a card. Uh, we'd really like to build that team up so that any new family who comes in, we always have room uh, from nursery to grade five. So please consider that. Uh, we're thankful for them. Um, we are going to turn our attention to Psalm 23. So I'd invite you, if you have a Bible, uh, open it up or an app on your phone. Uh, I am going to begin with, begin with prayer, and then we'll, we'll dive into the Word of God. Uh, Lord Jesus, we are so thankful to be able to, to gather here together. We're thankful, Lord, that, um, that you are with us, uh, Lord, that we can gather freely. I, I really uh, I pray for a province right now, Lord, just that comes to mind, just the, the forest fires in particular, Lord, that have just displaced so many people and um, have brought anxiety and fear for, for so many, Lord. We, we pray for them. We pray that... Um, that there would be rain. We, we pray for all the, I think, 3,500 firefighters that are, that are doing battle there, Lord, that you keep them safe and uh, that they would succeed in their efforts to extinguish these fires. But um, we just know that there are many people who are not in their homes, not sure if they have to leave. And so we pray that you would uh, comfort them. And uh, certainly if there are churches in that area, Lord, help them to do the good work of ministering to those in need. I pray for us, Lord. I pray that you would minister to us as well as we, as we seek to know you more through your words. Uh, God, uh, give us open ears and open hearts to hear from you. And uh, Lord, maybe we'd, maybe we'd be drawn closer to you through this, uh, through this psalm. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 23 uh, is, is a psalm that, that probably you know. Um, as I was thinking about this psalm, uh, I thought I was thinking about famous things. And uh, here's something that came to my mind. I thought, you know, famous landmarks uh, are famous for a reason. I'm talking about worldwide, like, you know, Eiffel Tower, Grand Canyon, uh, Taj Mahal, like these, these places, they are, they are famous uh, for a good reason. It's not because uh, of some clever marketing strategy. It's not because of a, of a big ad campaign for Niagara Falls. I mean, I, I know that Niagara Falls and the Coliseum are on lots of brochures, but but they didn't become famous because of those brochures. Those brochures are there because everyone already wants to go to these amazing places. Famous landmarks are famous because they are a genuine wonder to behold. People just want the joy of, of traveling uh, to see uh, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, just to, just to look at it and just be like, wow, that's amazing. Sometimes it's natural wonders, sometimes it's human-made wonders, but whatever it is, things are famous because they are worthy of our attention. It's not like, um, like the largest ball of twine in America, right? That exists, I think, in Kansas somewhere. That seems like something that someone made up to draw us there, to like make a buck. That's a very different thing uh, than you know, the Colosseum. That there's, there's a difference in the, in the worthiness of what it is that we are looking at. And I mention that because our psalm today is the most famous psalm in the Bible. It's probably one of the most famous passages in, in the Bible. I mean, people who don't care at all about the Bible, about the church, they will recognize Psalm 23. They'll, they'll know the language. It's famous in that way, and, it, and it's famous 
because it also is a wonder to behold. There is a genuine joy and comfort that comes from from feasting upon this this psalm. We're going to find in it words of comfort, words of, of grandeur, words of the love of God. So to begin with, we're just going to read it. Uh, it's not going to be up on the screens. I want you to just listen to the language, or if you have a Bible, you, you can read along. But as we work through it, I'll put the, the words up there so we can look in detail. But, but here is uh, Psalm 23. It begins this way. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, oil. my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's God's word to us this morning. I want to begin just by looking at that first line just by thinking for a moment what it means that that the Lord is our shepherd. And then we're going to look and see what are the implications of understanding that fully. Uh, So shepherd, I mean, we know know what that is, but it's interesting that that word was chosen here. Uh, This psalm is written by King David. Uh, If you know David, you know that he, he was a shepherd when he was younger, so he knows exactly what it means to be a shepherd. And he obviously chose this, this word, this image, intentionally. Uh, If you look through the Psalms, there's a lot of other words that he uses for God. There's like king and fortress and rock and shield and strong tower, but none of them capture the intimacy of shepherd. A shepherd, David knew very well, spends a lot of time with his sheep. He has an intimate relationship with the animals that he cares for, and that really is the, the dynamic that this Psalm puts on display, the loving care of God for his people. So that's what we're going to look at in terms of shepherd. Now, Lord, uh, in the Hebrew, just means Yahweh. So this is the covenant God of Israel. David is basically saying here, God is my shepherd, which is, which is great, fantastic, amazing. Even more amazing is that we know that God to be Jesus himself. He's, we can say Jesus is my shepherd. And we can say that uh, because Jesus talks about himself as a shepherd. He, he says very clearly, here's John 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. So it's, it's not a stretch for us to read ahead in a sense and consider this psalm to be prophetic and saying, look, this is, a, this is talking about uh, Jesus' relation relationship to his church, to his people, that he is actually our shepherd. He cares for us in that way. And this is really why this psalm uh, is so famous because the words in it are so very comforting, so very uplifting. I mean, in our darkest hours, in our darkest days, people have turned to this psalm to be, to be encouraged, but it's more than just a word for those who are struggling. Really what we find in here is, is um, the answer for how we can flourish in life. I mean, in all the days of our life, what we need to understand according to this song is that we are dependent on Jesus like sheep are dependent upon their shepherd. And and you see right away the the blessing of it. Verse one, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I I mean, that's that's pretty astounding. That David would say, when I know that the Lord is my shepherd, there's nothing that I I will need. I will have everything that I need. 
So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the essential benefits that come from seeing Jesus as our good shepherd. And uh, I'm going to group them into three categories as we work through peace, comfort, and belonging. Peace, comfort, belonging. We'll start with peace. And verses two and three, uh, what we find here at the beginning is that these sheep are very peaceful sheep. Uh, look at the language. Uh, this is David writing as a sheep. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So there's a, a book that I looked to this week uh, quite extensively. It's called A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. And it's written by a guy named Philip Keller, not Tim Keller, Philip Keller. And he was actually a shepherd. He grew up in East Africa and he spent uh, his time, eight years, he was a sheep owner and sheep rancher. And so later he became a pastor and he wrote some reflections as someone who's actually been a shepherd. Very fascinating. Lots of, lots of details about sheep that I didn't know. Here's one of them. He said, sheep, uh, sheep do not lie down very uh, easily. They're a very skittish creature. Maybe, maybe that was obvious. They're very fearful. So if they're nervous about anything, they don't lie down. They're always kind of standing ready to run. That's the only thing they can do if someone wants to attack them. They don't have hooks or talons. They just run. So for a sheep to lie down, he says four things need to be present. They have to have no fear of predators, no friction between them and the other sheep. Apparently they get into conflict. I'm not sure about what, but they do. Um, no bugs or parasites and no hunger. If, if that's present, then a sheep might be peaceful enough to, to lie down. And what this guy Keller uh, points out is he, is he says, look, all of those things they all come from the work of the shepherd. So for example, he says the green pastures here, a shepherd looks at that line and knows the only reason there's a green pasture there is because of the shepherd. Because the shepherd has to actually cultivate the land, especially uh, where David was writing this. Um, East Africa is a lot like the Middle East. And he says, look, it's not, it's not like Scotland where there's rolling green hills forever. It's, it's a dry, arid climate. And so if there's a green pasture, that means someone has done a lot of work. Uh, he tells the story of, of when he bought his first sheep farm, and it was not well kept, which means that the, the pastures were overgrazed, everything was brown and dry. So for him to provide green pastures for his sheep, he had to do a lot of work. He had to pull up boulders. He had to cultivate the soil, put down seed, water it, and most importantly, uh, make sure the sheep didn't graze all in one spot, to move them around. He said, after a while of doing that, then he had uh, pastures with like lush green grass and the sheep loved it. They frolicked and it was wonderful. His point is that they, it doesn't just happen. The shepherd was at work. Same thing with water, especially in the Middle East. He said, it's tough to find clean water sources. Uh, he described one ranch he went to, a very dry area where the, the family had actually kind of carved out of the sandstone uh, cliff a, a water source. There was a well down deep into it. It was like a big chamber and so to water their animals, they would lead them into the chamber, and then the shepherd had to go down into this well and bail out water in the heat. He just described him like, you know, sweating, heaving the water out just to make sure the animals had the water they needed. Again, it's the work of the shepherd that would provide for the animals. Paths of righteousness is, is very much the same. Um, sheeps are creatures of habit, which means apparently that you can't just, like if you leave them in a big open field, they won't go and eat the grass over the whole field. They'll stay in one area and they'll eat the grass down to the root and they'll pull the root out and ruin it. 
Uh, they will also walk in the same paths, the ones that they know. So they'll make these big uh, kind of like divots in, in the ground. They'll just ruin the land. So you have to move them around. Uh, a good shepherd will lead the, the sheep in the right paths to clean water, to good pasture. Again, the point is, look, it's the shepherd that does this work. And what he goes on to say is that for those who know the Lord, there should be immediately huge, huge parallels between the work of the shepherds of this earth and Jesus as our shepherd. And he points to some sort of compelling imagery in terms of what Jesus has done for us. He said he's, he's um, excavated out the, the boulders of unbelief from our mind and from our heart, which is exactly what we see in the word. That if we have faith, it's because God has given us that gift and that, that the work is his. He said that Jesus, what he does is he digs out the roots of bitterness. He breaks up the hard, proud, hun, uh, sun-baked clay of our hearts, which, which is true. Apart from him, we, we are self-sufficient. We think we are. We need the spirit of God to humble us, to break us down so that we can actually receive the peace that Jesus brings us. He reminds us that it's Jesus who sows the seed of, of the word into our hearts and waters it with the spirit of God. He's basically reminding us of, of the truths of the gospel, that all of the blessing that we have in our life, the true spiritual blessing, the genuine peace is because of the work of Christ. It's not our work. I mean, that, that's the message of the gospel. It's not us who gets down in there and really makes things happen. It's Jesus who went to the cross. It's Jesus who paid for our sin on that cross and by that brought us peace with God, atoned for our sin. And from that peace, then it spreads into every other area of our lives. We respond, we, we worship we repent, we serve, we work, but it, that's not the work that did it. That's not the work that brought the peace. That work is just honoring the one who brought us genuine peace. It's his work, his sacrifice. But here's the thing that, that Keller points out, that when he said it, I guess it, it makes sense. I never thought of this. He said, some sheep prefer bad pasture land. He said, there's some sheep that will always be on the other side of the fence. He told the story about this one sheep. And here's how he described the sheep, which is, I don't know what this means. He said it was a beautiful female sheep. I don't know, I don't know what that means. He said something about her coat was luscious. I don't know. Anyway, beautiful female sheep. And uh, what he said is she, was, she, always would go un, she would always be on the other side of the fence. Whenever he would come to the flock, she would be the one. And where she would go, it wasn't better land. It was dry. The, 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 the ground was dry. The grass was dry. But she would always be there. She'd find her way around the barbed wire under the fence. It was very frustrating. The worst part about it, he said, is that it wasn't just her. She would, if she had lambs, she would teach them to do the same thing. Other sheep would notice her and be like, I wonder what's over there. They would lead, she'd come and there'd be 10, 15 sheep on the other side of the fence in land that can't nourish them. This over here is green, lush, uh, good water source over here. It's muddy drinking water. It, it just drove him nuts. But here's the thing. Eventually, eventually he had to make the sad decision of slaughtering the sheep because she was a danger to herself and a danger to all of the other sheep. To which we, we could say, man, sheep are dumb, right? I mean, come on, sheep, these giving you grass, he's giving you water, you get everything you need. You're, why would you go to the other side of the fence? That's so foolish. I'm glad we're not like that, right? As human beings, we're intelligent, sophisticated. Look at, look at all we've done. Look at our cities. Look at our technology. We don't, do, we don't behave like that, do dumb things like that, Right? 
God points out something that we maybe know already. Isaiah 53, 6, speaking about human beings, says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. What it's talking about there is our stubborn, sinful heart that, that turns away from God. That even for those of us who have faith, that there's, there's large portions of our mind and our heart, certainly the beginning of our faith, where we resist the leading of God. Where if Jesus is our shepherd and he's saying go this way, we're like, mm, I, I don't know, this, this way seems better. There's something in us, a stubbornness in us, that we prefer dry grass that we choose rather than the green grass that God is leading us to. Simply because we chose it. That there's some twisted pleasure in our mind or heart that thinks this is better. That I, look, I will decide what I want to eat, thank you very much. Even though it's, it's slowly killing us. It's not nourishing us, the, the things that we need. I mean, there are, if you think about it, in your life, there are definitely those things which are on the other side of the fence and you keep going back there. See, what we see in the ver- beginning of this psalm is, is really a question. How do we see ourselves? Do we see ourselves as shepherds or as sheep? So if you think we're shepherds, we're gonna, I mean, fences, whatever. We, we're gonna go where we want to go. We know the path that is best. But if we recognize that on our own, we always end up in places where it's not actually nourishing. If we look around and we notice there isn't actually a real abiding peace in our life, then it, then it, then it could be a clue that there is only one really good shepherd. And that if we resist him, we're actually resisting the peace that he wants to bring in our lives. Verse three shows us what can come from turning back to Jesus as our shepherd. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. It's speaking about the glory that is given to God when when a sinner comes to repentance, is forgiven, finds genuine life and peace, but also it's, it's talking about the goodness that comes our way. By his grace and mercy, we can always turn back to our shepherd and to recognize, hopefully finally and fully, that we depend on him. That's the first part, the peace that comes from recognizing that we really do need a shepherd. Secondly, there's comfort. Now this line, uh, it's probably the most famous line. Uh, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, it goes on from there. But that that beginning part, you find it all over the place. You you find it in classic poems. Uh, I found one, this wasn't on the top of my head, but Alfred Lord Tennyson, um, 1854, wrote a poem about the, the charge of the light brigade clear reference to the valley of death. We see this over and over again. But the thing that did come to my mind was a song. In fact, the top song, 1995, when I was in my prime, um, 1995, uh, Coolio's Gangster's Paradise uh, begins with this line. If you don't know the song, don't go listen to it. But it begins with, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So this, this imagery is clearly compelling for human beings. Which isn't surprising. I mean, the, the sense of darkness, the sense of foreboding, right, of like the sheep going through this, this little craggy, craggy valley, the predators that could be there, we see the parallels with the difficult times in our lives, and we're meant to. But here's the thing. Most of the time, we take this imagery to be like difficult times in life, which it can be, it is. But a number of biblical scholars point to the fact that, look, really what it is talking about here in the Hebrew is actually death. That what's being spoken about here is is a human being approaching death itself. Um, And if you look at the psalm, it kind of works that way. I think better that way, in fact. Verses 1 to 3, it's talking about peace in this life. 
Verse four refers to comfort in death. And then verses five and six speaks about the joys of heaven. So the good thing about, or the helpful thing about seeing this as really referring to death is um, if the theme is encouragement from God, like us finding comfort, encouragement, help from our shepherd, then I think it would really make a lot of sense to see this as talking about death. Because death is like the biggest challenge for human beings. Like this would be like getting an exam and you, you get the hardest question, you answer that first, then the rest of it seems easy. If we can find comfort in death, then the rest of life and the challenges of life, it, it's easier because we have the biggest thing taken care of. The other thing about death is that death, it reveals the truth about the other comforts that we have in life. Because we have a lot of them. I mean, human beings find comfort in, in, all, in all sorts of things, but there, there tends to be like, what, top five or six comforts that we look to. Things of this world, right? Food, um, alcohol, maybe drugs, sex, um, shopping, hobbies. It could be all the things. Just think about the things that human beings, yourself included, um, that help you get through the day. These are, these are material comforts, usually. Things that, uh, you know, when, when it, we have a tough day, we're just, we're just waiting so we can get home, so we can order a big pizza, or we can get a glass of wine, or whatever it is that kind of just gets us through the day. You, you could even think of them, uh, since we're talking about shepherds, like shepherds in our lives. In a sense, they guide us. They comfort us. Now, they're nothing compared to Jesus as our shepherd, but the difficult thing is that in in the midst of our lives, it's sometimes tough to tell the difference because they do actually comfort us. Like it is actually comforting when you've had a very stressful day just to turn on Netflix and two hours later you're, you just fall asleep and oh, I feel like I really got rested. But what we forget is, is these shepherds, these comforts, though they get us through that day and maybe tomorrow and maybe for the next few years, there will come a point where they can't actually comfort us. And pointing to death is, is very helpful because the truth is that as we approach death, all of these shepherds, all of these comforts, they all fall away. They, they can't actually help us when it gets to those moments in life when we are truly in peril, where we truly need comfort. They're, look, you can't eat enough food, you can't drink enough wine, you can't have enough sex or buy enough stuff to be comforted in the last hours of your life. It doesn't work. In the end, the thing that has been cloudy throughout our life becomes very, very clear that these shepherds, these supposed sources of comforts, they all leave us. They abandon us. And we are left at the gates of death, afraid and alone. Unless we know Jesus as our shepherd. Unless he is our true comfort. Look at verse four again. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. For your rod and your staff, they comfort me. No, notice the shift in person there. David's shifting from saying he, like, like God, to saying you. It's, it's a personal connection. He's saying you, Lord, you're the one who comforts me. We would say you, Jesus, you are the one that comforts me. How? How does he comfort us in the moment of death? Well, two things are pointed out. One uh, is his presence. You're with me. The words of Jesus make very clear that even though he has gone back up into heaven, he has not left us. He, he said, go, go into the world, make disciples. I will, I will be with you until the end of the age. How? Through his spirit. 
Even though he is at the right hand of God interceding for us, his spirit is with us. If you're a believer, that means that you have been indwelt by the spirit of God. The helper given so that we might be led in the paths of righteousness, convicted of sin, encouraged when we feel low, reminded of the truths of God as we read the Bible itself. All of those things that sometimes just seem flat on the page by the power of the Spirit, they just fill our hearts with, with the reminder of God's love. That is his presence with us. They will never leave us, never forsake us. But notice also he points to his work in our lives. Uh, what actually the wording is, is your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So those are the tools of a shepherd, which uh, Keller, who I was reading about, says they still use. Staff, obvious, you're like walking with a staff as a shepherd. But the rod is this shorter stick, uh, sometimes called a cudgel, and it's narrow at one end, thick at the other. They usually make it from the branch of a tree where it meets the tree, and they, they carve it. So it's got this big, thick part, and they use it um, to protect the sheep, they polish all up. They practice. Uh, Keller said he practiced with his thing. And um, if there's an animal or something attacking the sheep, obviously you throw it, and they can be very accurate. But also they use it to discipline the sheep. When the sheep are being bad sheep, when they're ramming each other. I don't know what they would do. They ram each other sometimes, I think. They escape, whatever they're doing. You throw this thing, and it hits the sheep. They're fluffy. It doesn't really hurt them, but it shocks them. And um, they don't do that anymore. That bad behavior is, is stopped. So th that is the way that Jesus treats us, isn't it? He protects us from threats. He did that decisively at the cross. Satan, sin, death, the things that can truly hurt us, all we have victory over them through the cross. But also Jesus, uh, he disciplines us. And he does that by convicting us over sin. By bringing adversity into our lives so that we, we can see the areas where we're not trusting him. And the point here, what he's trying to say is in the moment of death, in those times where you're truly fearful, whatever it is that is our, our greatest fear, we are meant to be able to look back and see the work of God in our lives and, and to be comforted. Because in those difficult moments, in those truly fearful moments, what are we fearful of? We're fearful that we're going to be left alone, that God won't be with us, that he won't actually help us. And looking backwards reminds us, no, look, if he was there and there and there and there, he'll still be with me. He's not going to forsake me. This is why we can walk through the valley of death without fear. Because Jesus has promised to be with us. Because we can experience his presence, we remember his activity, and when it comes to death, I mean, think about it this way, he is the only shepherd who's actually been through the valley of death. He knows the way. He's come out alive on the other side and his promise to us is the same. So here's our, my question for you is, what is it that comforts you in your day-to-day -day life? I'm not saying you can't have a nice sandwich at the end of the day, all right? I'm not saying you can't buy something online. What I'm saying is, is what is it that really gets you through each day? Where is your lifeline? Where is your source of life? Are, are you on your knees at any time during the day? Are you in the word? Are you actually drinking from the fountain of life that is God himself? Or are you just getting through each day? Just, just making it through, just waiting for the whatever at the end of the day or in the, the morning just to kind of perk you up so you can make it through another day and another day and eventually you're gonna realize that you don't actually have true comfort when you need it. And see, the danger is that if we're used to looking to the things of this world for comfort, when we really need it, we won't, we won't remember, we won't be practiced at clinging to Christ. What the psalm is, is 
pushing us is to evaluate the things in our life and to draw near to him as our true shepherd. And then watch a movie, it's fine. But, but the source, the true source, needs to be Christ himself. He is our shepherd, he is our comfort. That's the second thing. Here's the third thing, belonging. Uh, in the last couple of verses, the metaphor actually shifts. It shifts from Jesus as our shepherd to Jesus as our host. Uh, so look at verse five. He says, you prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. So that language is describing like an ancient feast. Um, the, the head with oil, cup overflowing, like with whatever is wine, or it, it's just describing an abundance. But it's, it's more, here's what we need to understand. It's more than just a nice dinner. This isn't just like saying, we're gonna go to the keg. This is gonna be great. It's not just the food that is the joy here. What really is being described is that in these meals, there would be a bond that would be created of, of friendship, of commitment, of, of belonging. And we, in particular, see these kinds of meals throughout the Bible. In the history of, of God and his people, there are these meals that take place when something significant is established. So the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, where God came and, and gave the Ten Commandments to his people, uh, there was a meal. Uh, he wasn't with God, God is spirit, but here's how it's described in Exodus 24. I'll just read it. It says, they beheld God and then they ate and they drank. So there was a feast that happened because there was something significant happening. And that's how they commemorate it, is how they remember it. A similar meal, though it was very different um, looking, uh, was the Last Supper. The Last Supper was the beginning of a new covenant. Whenever we celebrate communion together as a church, we read usually from 1 Corinthians 11, uh, the words of Jesus where he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. They were having a meal together and they were doing that in part because it established a new way of relating to God through mercy, through grace, through the person and the sacrifice of Jesus. There was a meal there because something significant was beginning. A new sense of belonging in Christ. At the end of the story, there's another meal. We see it in the book of Revelation. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Here's a couple of verses describing it. Revelation 19.9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, Jesus says this in Matthew 8.11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So this is the meal that Psalm 23 is talking about. That at the end of the story, there will be another feast, another meal. Uh, the presence of the enemies simply means that all of our enemies has been defeated. That in heaven, we will be able to enjoy a genuine intimacy with God and the, the feast, the meal, will be a time of celebration. It'll be a time of understanding that man, a new thing now has happened. We now have a place and a presence in heaven itself. So that theme is something that I think bears thinking about. Because for human beings, belonging is really important. I mean, I know there's some of us, um, especially when we're young, that like to wander, like to travel. Not these days, but normally we travel all over the world. There's just something we want to get out there. But, but generally speaking, we tend to settle down and we find real, um, real peace and security in, in a, a place to belong. Some land, a townhouse, an apartment, whatever it may be. In the end, for the Christian, what we're seeing here is that that search for a place to belong will come to a glorious conclusion. 
that in the end, in heaven itself, we won't be in a dry, arid land, wandering around. We won't be cobbling together, you know, comforts from just the things in the world. We won't even need a shepherd to lead us anymore. We will have arrived. We'll belong. We'll be at peace. Look at how it's described in verse six. This is describing us, us in heaven. Surely, David says, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, sadly, for many human beings, death is a journey into the unknown. But for the Christian, for the Christian, it's a journey home. It's a journey into the place that we truly belong. And we see this over and over again. Jesus describes that the hope that is coming, the kingdom of heaven that is coming. Look at his words in John 14. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? You see the connection there. He's saying, let not your hearts be troubled now because later in heaven, there will be a place for you. That, that your peace now is tied to the fact that you have a place to belong in heaven with God himself. The comfort for today comes from knowing where we will end up in eternity. And that reminds us of something that we know to be, we kind of intuitively know to be true, which is that when we know the end of the story, I mean, it, it changes the story itself. Like, for example, if you're watching a movie and, and the ending is bad and someone asks you, how was the movie? Even if it was great up to the end, we'll say it was not a very good movie. The ending was totally disappointing, whatever it may be. If the ending is good, even if there's something bad in the middle of it, we'll tend to say, oh, that was a pretty good movie. The end very much impacts how you see everything. It's, this, it's the same thing with life. Now, I will say this about endings. I have great trouble with those people who say when they're reading a book, will go to the end and read the final page. I don't know if I can make the case biblically, but I believe there's, moral, there's evil there, okay? <laughs> I think that is really, you should not do that. That's wrong. It's wrong for you, wrong for your family. But, um, but there's one exception, and that is life itself. Life itself. Look, you will not have peace and comfort in this life unless you know the end. That's, that's part of the whole point of, of the Bible, that we would know who we are truly, that we would know God truly, and that we would know there is an end to the story. That's what God is giving us in this psalm yet again, a glimpse, a beautiful picture of how things will go in the end for those who have faith. That's the key. That, that's the linchpin of this psalm. People all over the world read this psalm at, at funerals, in difficult times, and yet they don't even know Jesus. That's not how this psalm is meant to be used. It's meant to drive us to Jesus. It's meant for us to see so clearly that if we don't have Jesus as our shepherd, then there is no comfort. There is no hope. There is no peace in this life or in the life to come. But if you do know Jesus, then you can have comfort and peace and belonging. So as a final question, I think we need just to decide or be pushed to decide who is our shepherd. Because the thing about sheep, they, they can't have multiple shepherds. It doesn't work that way. We, we can't have things in our life that we look to for comfort and joy and strength and yet also say, no, but I'm, but I'm a follower of Jesus. We need to decide, is he the one? 
Is he the one that knows the right paths in our lives? If he is, then we'll follow him. Is he the one that is going to bring genuine peace and comfort through his presence? Then we will seek after him. We will want to spend time in the word. We want to spend time in prayer. We will seek his wisdom, seek his counsel. We will allow ourselves to be governed by him because we trust him fully. We will not allow another shepherd to lead us under a fence or into a land that is dry, deceiving us into thinking that it's better for us. We, we will trust the Lord. And in that way, we will be able to live a life without want, which doesn't mean that there isn't difficulties and trials. What it means is that our soul is satisfied in him. And so my encouragement to you, look, if you're a person of faith, be thankful. Be thankful for the work of Jesus, for his shepherding. If you're not yet, I would encourage you, examine your life. Look at the things that are, that are bringing you comfort. What will happen in the end? Will they be, be there for you the way that Jesus will? In all of this, we are led to praise the Lord, praise him for his shepherding work, and to actually follow him. I'm gonna pray that for us. Pray that as we, as we consider this, as we move into worship, and even this week, that we would look for the things each day and say, Lord, how, how might I follow you better? How might I turn from those things which are leading me astray? Let me pray that for us now. Lord Jesus, we do thank you, for you are a good shepherd. We thank you, Lord Jesus, because even though we are, we are wayward so much of the time, even though we are prideful so much of the time, even though you give us green grass to feast on, we, we turn away, we go to things that will destroy us. Even though all of that is true, you love us still. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that that, that love, that, that grace, that mercy would soften our hearts and that we would see clearly the things in our lives that are promising us great comfort, great joy, and yet they don't truly deliver and they certainly won't deliver in the last days. I pray that through that conviction, we would repent, we would turn to you. Maybe some of us for the first time. That we would turn to you in faith and that we would actually follow your lead. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us enough to, to discipline us. You love us enough to, to enter into the difficult times in our lives, Lord. May we not believe the lie that you will abandon us or that, you, that we've sinned too much. The truth is that your grace is abundant and your love is ever flowing. And so I pray while we are here in this life that we would look to you, that we would follow your lead and that indeed you would glorify yourself through us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.